This call is now being recorded. Hello, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I'm here with Jeremy Feebig. Jeremy, Hello. you uh, run a theater group, is that correct, sir? That's right. Uh, it's called Sweet Tea Shakespeare, and we're located in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Oh, good. What college is that? What college town is that? So we have um, three colleges. Um, I teach at Fayetteville State. That's my day job. I'm a professor of theater there at Fayetteville State University. And uh, Methodist University is also here. It's a small private liberal arts college or university, I should say. And then we have a, a Fayetteville Technical Community College as well. Okay. Now, this podcast or these episodes of this podcast are typically organized around coronavirus, although they don't necessarily have to be. But I'm just going to ask you a series of questions, and, and you're going to – you can answer however you see fit. Okay. Uh, my first question is, when did you become aware of the coronavirus? Oh, that's a great question. And I have to dig, dig back into, into memory. I, I sort of want to say I was, I was hearing bits and pieces of it, um, in January, uh, at some point, um, late January, early February, like we were hearing about it, um, in China. Uh, and then we were really confronted with it, um, beginning of March. We had a, a show in production then. Uh, we're about to go into rehearsals for another couple shows, and that's where we were, both at the university and at Sweet Tea, faced with like, uh, what are we going to cancel and, and effective when? Um, and so I have a real strong memory of like, we were the last, um, we had the last performances, live performances of theater in town in Fayetteville before uh, our state, you know, basically closed every, everything down and sent everybody home. Uh, that was right around Ides of March because we were doing uh, Julius Caesar at the time, so right, right around March 15th. Wow. All right. So, and this is a point of reference. The NBA closed up, I think. I had to Google it, but it was March the 14th. Mm-hmm. And that, in the minds of a lot of Americans, is when they realized coronavirus was going to be a big deal. So I'm just kind of curious when you realized it was going to be a big deal. Well, we uh, understood it to be a big deal uh, that week um, because we were – so our young company, we have a young company of teenagers who – do plays as well, and they were doing this uh, production of Julius Caesar at our local public library, um, and we were anxious about whether there, it was going to happen. Um, we were sort of waiting to see what the state was going to do, um, and and I think the state issued an announcement for Monday that things would, would shut down, basically, and we were performing on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. So we got those um, those performances in. And then, uh, we were done. And at that point, we, uh, were sort of, like nobody knew how long this was going to last. Everybody was hoping, you know, it would be a few weeks. By summertime, for sure, it would be done. Uh, nobody kind of knew how to read it at that point. Um, or, or at least there was a lot of confusion and mixed messaging. 
And so we had, we started, uh, for several weeks to rehearse a play. We were just meeting on Zoom. Um, we had plans to do both, um, Midsummer Night's Dream and, uh, a Night's Tale. And we were, we started those processes on Zoom on the assumption that at some point here in May, things are going to open back up to some degree and we'll do something socially distant. We'll have a limited audience. We'll be able to do that. And, um, all the calendars, you know, just kept moving and moving and moving. Um, and so we ended up dropping the midsummer. I mean, we are, we had folks who rehearsed for three or four weeks and we ended up dropping that and, uh, the Knight's Tale, um, we did a lot of Zoom rehearsals and then were able to pull off a socially distant, no audience um, performance that we recorded um, that's still kind of being edited for eventual distribution. So, and since then, we have pivoted basically, that's the word of the moment, pivot, um, uh, <laughs> basically to all on- online production. I mean, we're not doing anything in person. Um, the closest we'll get is a, is maybe like a concert where, you know, the audience is very far away and all our, our band members are, are fully masked and that sort of thing. That's about as close as we'll get. And we're only going to do one or two of those this, this, um, this fall and winter. Okay. Believe it or not, I've interviewed all these people. Some of it actually made it onto the internet. And you are the first person to use Zoom by name. Okay? <laughs> now, I know what Zoom is enough. I'm sure the current people do. But these, this is also for future people. Sure. So would you mind explaining to folks what Zoom is? Sure. Zoom is a, is a, is an application for your computer or your smartphone, uh, that facilitates teleconferencing. And so, um, it's been around for a long time. I, I used it on a, on a somewhat regular basis, uh, because I work with people long distance. And it, it basically puts your face, uh, on their screen and their face on your screen. And it can, can do that, um, like in group ses- settings too. So you can, um, you could see 16 people at once or 40 people at once. Um, and you can have conferences that way. You can have, um, Class, classes that way. That's kind of what we're doing now, uh, in the teaching part of my world. And we can have rehearsals and performances that way. Um, and the, the performance side of this has become really, really interesting in the last few months because, you know, we can't, uh, safely be in a, in a theater together. So the form, the theater form is shifting to Zoom and other applications that do similar things. Um, and we're doing a version of theater that way. Um, it's really interesting because it's very different, um, but we're sort of using the technology uh, where it is now to make some entertainment, some content um, that, that for us builds community. So that's, that's what that software is. Oh, cool. Um, and again, I, I knew what it was, but, you know, the Internet – can be forever, sure. and, you know. That's right. You're the you're the first person. I I don't remember how many folks I've interviewed, but you are the first person to use Zoom by name. So I, I thought I'd get you to explain it. Thank you for playing along. Um, sure, happy to be of service. The next two questions, um, 
Okay, I'm going to ask you to put a thinking cap on. This this next question kind of uh, snuck up on me, right? Mm-hmm. Because so many people, I've talked to folks all over the country, right? In fact, I think I've talked to people internationally. And every, just about everybody says, I'm missing somebody. Like somebody's missing, or and it can be groups of people, or... Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't had any, you know, these new people showed up, right? But, you know, and to be clear, like, they don't think, nobody thinks somebody's being abducted by aliens or whatever. But it's like one lady said, you know, the the whole deli section's gone or, you know, where'd, where'd they all go? So are you, are there people missing from maybe not your circle of friends or family but that you would normally see or or whatever, and you just don't know where they are. Yeah, okay. I, I think I have a. Uh, I, I think I have a. I don't know if this is this is a direct answer to your question, but so one of the things I look at as a person who runs a theater company is like is who shows up, what's their profile, who are we reaching, um, and there is a there is a big gap in, in terms of who we're reaching now, and it breaks down. Um, uh, Along like economic lines, like can you very simply can you afford a Zoom subscription as an example, or can you afford a smartphone payment? Can you afford internet? And the folks who could maybe afford to show up every now and again for a play and do not cannot do the technology side of of the digital reality in COVID, we're missing those people. Um, we're missing, and, and that breaks down, by the way, along um, the lines you would expect it to uh, socioeconomically. So uh, we're going to see less people of color uh, in our audience uh, as a result of this. Um, we're going to see um, uh, more like middle class and upper middle class, and we're going to see fewer folks uh, for whom technology is a, is a barrier. Uh, I see that in the classroom, and I see it um, – in the theater, both, and then I think more um, more than there's another more specific answer, which is that um, people who come to a theater company for a play are coming uh, in part to sit in a room with other people uh, and to have a sort of a communal experience, and um, and it's about laughing together, it's about breathing together, it's about being inside the joke together. And you can't do that in the same way on Zoom. There are ways to connect. Um, and you can't do the, the other thing we're doing these days in addition to Zoom is a lot of podcast work. And, and it's, it operates mostly one direction. And when it op- operates in more than one direction, it, it's what we call asynchronous, right? So, so you can, you can put out a podcast episode, but the feedback you're going to get on that is coming later. And that's not the way theater works. Um, theater is like instant, immediate, live feedback that that um, changes the dynamic of of both the actor and the audience, and you can't get that in in these digital platforms in quite the same way. So we're missing some folks so, there. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, Jeremy, you, you mentioned podcasting. Um, this this at least begins its life as a podcast. Um, I. I don't know. I mean, I've got a, a drive and I'm storing them all on a drive, but, um, I want these to be a primary 
history source at some point. Sure. But how old are you? If I, you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm trying to see if you're a I'm, digital I'm native or a digital immigrant. In just a few weeks, yeah, I'm, I'm about, okay, to, so, about to turn forty. Right, so you're of the Oregon Trail generation, if you know what that is. Yes, I am you know, absolutely. Okay, great. Do you know what that means? Um, alrighty. So, um, talk to me about. I guess talk to the world, <laughs> so to say about your thoughts on podcasting. So, um, first of all, I, I love it. I, I have podcasts in my ears um, every morning. I go to the gym. I'm listening to someone. What I like about it is that it feels private and intimate. Um, it feels like these people are talking to me, and I can sort of take their their topic, their content, their direction, and I'm uh, live and in the moment for me, sort of downloading that and figuring out how it applies to my context. Um, and and it it um, it's occupying for me this space that is more personal than radio. Um, that that um, feels like what's happening maybe in a, over a living room conversation. Um, and and what I particularly like are the are the conversation um, kinds of podcasts. Sort of like the one that's happening now where, where like it feels like we're in a living room or it feels like we're we're meeting over a beer or a coffee or something like that. Exactly. And, and people are saying what they actually think instead of the sort of produced version of what you can encounter in, in sort of mass media. Um and that's one of the reasons I like it. Um that that uh that sort of approach. This uh kind of less produced, less slick version. Um I really enjoy those. The thing that I find as a podcaster, uh, I, I find it deeply humbling. I I am deeply humbled because I'm just a guy in a back bedroom. And believe it or not, I have one of the most listened to independent podcasts that isn't about sex or murder <laughs> in in basically in America or, you know, mm-hmm. in the world. And I'm just, it, it sounds like I'm bragging when I say that, but I'm, it, I'm, just, it's so humbling. Um, mm-hmm. but it just, um, this is a revolution, man. <laughs> you know, not to be dramatic about it, but, um. No, I completely agree. I mean, it's the, it's the great thing, like when the internet was coming around, um, you know, the, the, the sort of democratic, uh, nature of things where, you know, everybody has a voice, uh, everybody has a platform, and I think we're experiencing that same kind of energy in the podcast space. Uh, yeah. and, and I hope it's always true. I mean, I, I hope this is the way it always works and it's not overtaken by the sort of network version of, of whatever a podcast would be, but, um, yeah, I'm, I, you know, it's, um, it's amazing. It's sort of my go-to my go-to media of choice these days for sure. All right. Now, I want to circle back around to a question because you answered it, but it, and I don't mean to sound forceful, but it wasn't Okay, let me explain to you what the question was about. I've talked to I don't even know, but I've talked to a lot of people all over the country. And recently, I figured out 
that all but like two or three of them told me they were missing people from their lives. Like they people just, you know, where is this person? Where are my neighbors? Where, you know, where's the, where, where's half the deli? You know, one lady actually told me that the top four floors of her five floor apartment are all empty. And huh. I was wondering if you're missing people that way. Like, other um, than your the performance. Answer is yes. Um, the answer is sure. Uh, I mean, and I mean that as specifically as, um, I do know people who have, uh, died from COVID. Um, I've attended, uh, a funeral, uh, of someone that I knew. So there are people missing that way. There are people missing in my classrooms. Like, um, I, you know, I might have a, a roster of 30 people and a third of them might be missing. Um, and that's really unusual, uh, in, uh, in the context where I'm from, you know, like, you would expect a higher rate of people to appear. Um, I know, um, and this was true over the summer as well, you know, I I would visit my college campus, kind of sneak on to, you know, grab a book or something from my office. And um, and this is like when, when theoretically people were back, like staffers and things. And it was, uh, it was still then a ghost town. Um, and... Uh, I would have to think some more, I think, about the, 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 the example of like the, the four floors of empty, of empty places. I'd have to think more about that because I'm not sure I have an example like that. But I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I do think people, I do think there are people who have disappeared, um, in social media life. Um, um, you know, people that, that I would normally like have conversation with, um, and, who dropped off the map, uh, who, who, the, the term the youth use these days is ghost. And I think there's oh, a, right. <laughs> a, a much higher, um, a higher rate of that at the moment. Um, and I would attribute I, it to COVID. Absolutely. I either attribute it to COVID or to the economy. I, I don't know. But the one thing that I accidentally bumped into, literally, quite literally, accidentally bumped into just by talking to regular folks, um, is there seems to be an, literally just a, a massive amount of people missing from other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not, nobody seems to think it's, you know, they got stolen by UFOs or whatever. It's it's all like, where did they go? Sure. <laughs> you know. All right. So the other question that I ask is, how do you think the world is going to change from this? That's a great question. And it's one that um, the, the folks I work with at the theater company uh, and I have been trying to prognosticate about. I mean, in the theater business, our job, I think, is to imagine what the world could be like. I mean, in, in good and bad ways. Um, and so we have we have done what I think we are experts at, which is um, try to imagine what the what the world stage is going to look like in a year or two years or three years. Um, and and we are just now, and I think I imagine that this is true for most organizations like mine, which is that when 
Uh, I'm gonna. I have a long-winded answer to your question. I promise I'll come back to it. But like, well, there was take so your much time. shock associated with the advent of COVID, and then there was so much uncertainty about the time frame that it was going to be working in, and so, you know, like um, there were some clues that maybe it would last a few weeks or a few months and then go away, and there were some clues that were like this could last two years, um, and I think most organizations. Uh, are just now, six, seven months later, coming out of the sort of panic mode like, I've got a project, I might be able to pull it off in two months. I'm going to continue to commit to it. Or I've got a project, I might be able to pull it off in six months. I could go ahead and commit some resources to that. Where my company is and where I think uh, just from my sort of um, anecdotal monitoring of the world I live in, um, I think companies just now uh, on, a, on a wide scale are just kind of saying, okay, this is not going to be normal, normal for another year or two years um, at best. There will be versions of normal that creep back in, I think, is the, is the guess of the moment. Um, but we're not going to be back to normal um, for a long time in our world. Um, and so uh, we're just now saying the last – I don't know, six weeks or two months, thinking about like, okay, we're writing off the next year um, for all intents and purposes. Wait a minute. Hang what? on, because that's a term. I'm I'm sorry. That's a term, and I want to be specific because this is a history podcast. When you sure. say write off, do you mean uh, tax-wise or whatever? Like oh, I mean, sorry, or? that's a great question. I mean, as in we don't we don't think we're going to make any money through our traditional um, yeah. efforts. We're not going to have any productions um, traditionally uh, over the next year. Now, I'll qualify that a bit because we are hoping that by spring and summer of 2021, we'll be able to put our, like, dip our toe in, say, a live outdoor public performance, but it will still be tempered by social distance and masks and and all that kind of stuff. So the money we would expect to make doing two or three shows in, in the summer of 2021, we're not going to make that amount of money. Uh, yeah. So we don't have – when I say write off, I mean like our normal business model will not work for at least one other year and probably more like two. Uh, and so we are um, imagining what uh, the world has to look like a after that. Um, and like how we're going to shape things. So uh, I want to come back to your question, which is what do we think the world is going to look like um, or what are the opportunities uh, post-COVID? So I think, I think I could answer this question a million ways, but one is um, we have to, in my context, invent a way that is um, live event proof, in-person proof. So we've got to extend and build our community digitally in addition to in person, that's one thing. Two, um, we uh, have acknowledged, and this is part of the social unrest that we've seen um, over the last mm -hmm. few months, uh, starting with the, the killing of George Floyd uh, and extending through the summer, um, we uh, owe it to our community, uh, which is one of the most diverse in North Carolina, to um, yeah. make things that fit that community. Uh, as opposed to um, 
that are more comfortable for, say, white middle-class folks. And so that's going to be an approach that we take uh, going ahead. And actually, it's one of the things that COVID helps us do because every artist we know is sitting at home looking for things to do. And we can reach across the country and indeed across the world and get voices and faces and bodies that people in our network aren't used to seeing. And I think that's that's something we'll continue to do uh, after COVID. Um, I yeah. also think, and this is the, the one of the biggest takeaways from COVID, one of the biggest warnings, um, one of the biggest alarm bells that's going off is is to look at our organization and to look at us as individuals and see how insanely overcommitted we were before COVID. See how we were running ourselves out. And what is it like to to sit for six or seven or eight months or or a year or a year and a half or two years in relative quiet where where the the social engagements have to be taken down uh several rungs and to figure out how to learn how to deal with yourself. And so when we come back, I think what that's going to play out into is uh that we're not going to be as ambitious, that we're going to be okay with doing five really good events instead of 15 uh, events that just keep us busy right. because we're uncomfortable with us with ourselves. So that's part of it. And I think the kind of work is going to change to some degree, too. I work with a colleague. Her name's Claire Martin here at Sweet Tea Shakespeare. And she is um, – one of the things we're doing is taking the opportunity to explore work in this period that normally we wouldn't touch because we couldn't make any money off of it like it wouldn't sell tickets. So we can look at older, rarer plays – and present those, and I think that will be part of our identity going forward as well. She's she's got a series that she's working on called the Digital Restoration Series that's looking at wow. um, like these historic plays from the English Restoration and bringing them forward and trying to give them new voice. And she believes, and I agree with her, that once we come out of COVID, there will be a kind of renaissance, a kind of restoration culturally where the people have been storing up art, have been storing up creative ideas, have been essentially locked in their studios for some significant length of time. And when it comes time to share those things publicly, it's going to erupt. And uh, so I think whenever that time comes, in a year or two years, when it's okay to go back into an art gallery or into a theater or in, into a concert hall, we're going to see um, – some of the best work in generations uh, across the world uh, because the, yeah. the people have had a chance to stop producing and start living with themselves and, and start creating again and, and refuel their tanks. And so I'm looking forward to that very much. That's right. Um, the, if I can ask you this question, do you have any children or? I do. Uh, I have, um, I have a daughter who's about I, to turn 13 in just a few days and I have a son who's 10. Excellent, excellent, because it hit me like a two-by-four this morning that I'm not asking people how their kids are handling it. <laughs> so, would you mind? <laughs> so, that's a that's a great question, and it's one I don't hear uh, too often. So, um, so uh, here's what I think, um, and it's a bit of a counterintuitive answer. I mean, one of the, the, the cliches we hear, when kids are confronted with something as big as COVID or, or something like that, a school shooting, is um, 
we hear that they're resilient. And I actually think the opposite of that is true. The kids are not resilient at all. Um, and that, that, uh, they're impacted deeply by trauma. Um, all of the social research, psychological research signals that that's the case. And there is no reason to think that, that COVID and the significant trauma it is imposing on school kids everywhere is going to be any different. It's going to be deeply different. And it's changing that. It's changing family dynamics because we know kids are home and moms and dads are being, you know, teacher, classroom teachers essentially. And, and, um, I know for my kids, they can get through their homework, which would have been stretched out over six or seven hours, uh, pre COVID and they're getting it done in like an hour and a half or two hours. And, uh, so they have lots of extra time on their hands and like, what do you do with that? Um, and, uh, I mean, there's, there are also special family stressors because of that very thing, you know, like mom and dad have full-time jobs that they need to focus on and, and are being pulled away. So I think it's going to change what love looks like in, uh, in some households, um, for sure. Um, I'll say my kids are handling it just fine. Um, they, uh, there, there is, um, some eagerness to get back to their social lives that school afforded. But at the same time, I think um, for some kids, I think a significant population of the kids that we just don't think are normal, um, like they, school is not a positive experience for them. It's alienating. It's, it's, they, they experience bullying. Um, they, they experience distance. They're experiencing social pressures. Uh, and what I would say is for those, the kids that are wired that way, Including at least one of mine, uh, the COVID, uh, break is a, is, is really, really healthy, um, to sort of get out of those cycles and to have to live with yourself and keep yourself entertained, um, and, yeah. and get out of the, the sort of bully victim, um, cycle as well. And so, uh, I, I read that as a good thing overall. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it you know, this is a bit of an unpopular, or I guess not an unpopular opinion, but a little bit of a cliche, but happens to be true. That I really think a lot of people um, were traumatized by education in some, not education per se, but by the environment in which it happens. Um, and I didn't grow up. I mean, when I went to high school and whatnot, Colin, you know, Columbine hadn't even happened yet, so I can't even imagine what post-Columbine school would look like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, okay. Um, I, okay, what was the question I was going to ask you? Because you said that, and I was like, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, okay. So do you think the the homeschooling I guess the modern take on it. Do you think that's going to continue or, or, or not? Uh, that's a great question too. Um, uh, I do think it will, there will be a lasting impact. So I do think, um, uh, homeschooling is going to be picked up, uh, as more of an option for more, uh, families. Um, and, and particularly I would say outside of the folks, uh, the sort of, homeschool subculture that existed pre-COVID. I mean, I think it's going to be more appealing, 
more attractive to a to a, a, a different group of folks. Um, and one of the reasons I think so is that I think COVID is teaching us uh, that you don't need buildings to uh, have an education or have a job. So, so in the way that I would say, um, like remote work is going to be more popular. Uh, yeah. and, and in fact insisted upon and maybe even become something like uh, a right uh, in some cases uh, after COVID, I think we're going to see the same thing on the on the teaching side and, and a call for much more flexibility. Um, so uh, what that what that could mean is everything from like we'll see a different kind of like summer enrichment to kind of push kids along in a in a space where you know the research has said that the the summer gap for mo- for most students sets them back i think we'll see see some things that the digital world can step into i think we'll see um that the students who need to be home and benefit from from the home experience will have that option uh i'll see like you could see school districts offering like a virtual school a virtual academy kind of thing and that continuing on um and, I, and so I do think there will be sort of structural changes that come with that um, in, in, in higher ed too. Um, you know, one of the things that one of the things that I I think I even say. Well, I know I say it. I don't know if I say it on the podcast, but I know I say it in real life, as we say today. Um, that the pandemic would not have been possible. Well, it would have been possible, but it wouldn't have been negotiable without a smartphone for at least for my family. I mean, we're all, you know, the high risk category. So we have to order food from grocery stores and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Amazon, which brings me to a question I ask everybody, but I was going to ask you this. Um, We are, you and I are of the age where we almost can remember the entire internet up to today. Mm-hmm. Um, for the benefit of the folks in the future, <laughs> would you explain, I guess, first of all, if I can ask, how much do you pay for your internet? Do you even know? Um, I pay, I pay nothing for my internet. I, I, I um, well, at least really? as far as my house is concerned. Yeah, I, um, I, I pay nothing for my internet. Um, I, I happen to be in a living situation where that's provided. Um, and I don't actually pay rent or anything like that. I just, um, uh, just in a living oh, wow. situation that, that has it provided. I do pay like for an unlimited plan on my, my cell phone. On your phone? So I pay okay. that way. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't mean to pry too hard. I'm just, you know, it, it's been occurring to me that these people in the future are going to be like, how much did they pay for that? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things our country is waking up to a bit is that we, you know, we have to have it in order to function, uh, in order for our economy to function. So I think we're going to start to see, you yeah. know, broadband at a, at a real cheap rate for sure. Well, it's crazy. Like about a year or so ago, I was going somewhere, like a year or so ago, and I was, I was passing by these really you know, not mansions for, well, modern day mansions, but not like Biltmore. Okay. Not like, you know, but, you know, like what do they call them? Mansions or whatever. And it was, it was obviously in a part of town where the high speed internet 
hasn't happened yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And my dad, I was with my dad, and my dad was saying, you know, wow, that's a good investment right there. And I'm like, no, it's not. He's like, why not? And I'm like, they can't get high-speed internet. Why would you buy here if you can't get high-speed internet? And that was like a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But um, let me see. Um, hmm. Do you remember, like, you remember the, the previous, I guess, the Great Recession? Um, it seems to me, because I went back to college during the Great Recession, and it seems to me that the kids then learned how to, like, the video games became more engrossing. And I'm wondering if that was because of the Great Recession or not. And I'm wondering, like, I look at these kids now, and I'm I'm really sort of wondering, are they going to be into arts and crafts, or are they going to be really virtual, or what? I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's but, a really interesting question. So I do remember the Great Recession. I was in a, a, another teaching job in Iowa at the, the time. I was teaching undergrads. And um, I do remember it. I do um, – I also was teaching in north-central Iowa – so there was nothing to do outside for about six months of the year. It was just too cold. So there was a there was definitely an entertainment gaming culture there, in ways that that aren't true. Like when you're two hours from the beach, like I am now. Um, and um, so I, it's a it's a really interesting question. So I, I think um, yes, it is true, and we've seen this in trends from esports to anything I mean, Fortnite and anything else. Um, the accessibility of games on phones and, and things like that. Uh, yes, absolutely, gaming culture is more widespread. Yes, we're seeing that happen while uh, things like theater companies and, and live concerts and um, and even like traditional television ratings are going the opposite direction. And I think the reason that is is because um, gaming provides a sort of three-dimensional experience where you can enter and affect the story um, as opposed to just be told the story or just receive the story visually. And uh, I think that's super appealing. And I think it's particularly uh, particularly appealing uh, to people who who have a sort of independent spirit who want to make the world. I mean, our country in particular has a lot of language about how you can do anything and if you, you set your mind to it, that kind of stuff. And I think um, that is truer in gaming than it actually is in reality. So I think we see a lot of, of move there because of that. And I also think um, the psychological um, component to gaming and gamification where like we're achieve, you know, like you achieve a little thing, you get a little stars, you get you know, extra life or whatever. I mean, we're seeing that trickle out into everything else we're doing. Um, I'm seeing its impact in students I'm grading. I see its impact in sort of organizational um, operations and how you motivate people. And it's even so in like how you have to. Uh, I'm Go sorry. Ahead. You you have to like. Um, I guess like you have to have not instant gratification quite, but I guess. Like you can't have the the great payoff at the end of the semester. Basically, you have to give them. Yeah, you have to have little like check like little badges that you unlock or whatever. 
And I mean, wow. that's like, uh, um, I mean, we're seeing that on our phones. Like, like, um, the, the little red dot on the iPhone is a, is a, like, little thing you've got to take care of. It's a little game you play. It's like winning the lottery. Um, and so it's, it's building itself in, the gaming thinking is building itself into, um, I think everything we do. And, and I also think that there is, we're starting to see, um, fairly significant pushback in like psychological research and in the media to some degree and among parents who, uh, are waking up to the fact that maybe they're raising zombie children who know how to live with the screen and don't have any sort of practical skills, you know, tying knots or whatever that is. Um, and so I think, and COVID has, has really, um, I think created an opportunity, um, and time for folks to get out of that. I mean, there's, um, there's opportunity like in the family structure for like dad and daughter to go work on a car or figure out some, as you say, arts and crafts or something like that. And so I think we're, we're we will see, see output, um, and a, and a little bit of a shift there. Uh, and it's to be seen whether there will be a shift like on the technology side. Um, uh, we're, we're learning that, uh, like social media is really, really dangerous for kids, like, uh, <laughs> pack of cigarettes dangerous. Right. And so, uh, I think, I think we'll see some shifts there, but it'll, it'll take a little bit longer because there's so many sort of entrenched yeah. monetary interests, you know. Well, so we'll see how I just have, I just have, uh, one more real question, uh, which sure. is the last thing I always ask everybody. Is, is there anything you want to tell the internet? Is there anything I want to tell the internet? I, I would say this, um, and this is really the reason that I started, uh, Sweet Tea Shakespeare many, many years ago, um, which is that I think the sort of average human experience is, is one where you know, the average person, whoever you are, is experiences a lack of control over their own lives and a lack of wonder. Uh, they don't know how it works. When we grow up, grew up, we used to have dreams. We used to play pretend. We used to um, um, sort of, I don't know, want to fly to the moon, whatever it was. I mean, those were uh, – and then when we – that was kind of the the – I think it was a cultural code. I think that's what we were encouraged to do by healthy parents. I think that's what what Saturday morning cartoons sort of pointed us in that direction. I, I think we we um, we're supposed to play. We're supposed to find delight, joy, wonder, and that wears off when you get put into a job that's in a cubicle, selling widgets, um, or where you your experience of your own life is under someone else's control, whether that involves the government, whether it involves corporations, whether it involves schools, whether it involves um, family members or whatever it happens to be, or, or healthcare or whatever, you just experience a, a like a huge lack of control, and it's depressing, it's dehumanizing, and it's unfair and when you get out of practice with it with engaging in, in wonder and and knowing that you could maybe or you need to be given the opportunity 
to like sit at the steering wheel of your own life and really, really drive it. Um, that is what I think um, adulthood in America leads us to. And why I started the theater company is simply like I want to remind people, shake them, wake them up, show them some magic uh, to challenge that assumption, uh, to to like find that inner child that is still hopeful to to take control, um, uh, whether that that's a role in a play or whether you're an audience member who's like being confronted, like because we do a lot of audience interaction at our place. Um, where you're like woken up out of your chair, where you're not behind the cubicle anymore, where you do have to interact with people and you have to remember what it's like to treat people as human beings. Um, I think that's the work. Uh, I think that's the, the thing we're called to do uh, when we're being high-level human beings. And it's unfortunate that everything, <laughs> sort of every system that we engage in uh, in the world sort of moves us in the opposite direction. But what I would want to tell the Internet is um, I think the work is is finding out how to be a human being and look for every opportunity to do it and to support the, the work of other people doing it. And a lot of times that's your artists and your teachers and your musicians and, and your creatives, but it doesn't have to be. Um, just because you came up, you know, as an accountant or a, or a lawyer or a, or a shoe salesman, um, doesn't mean you don't have the, the ability um, in your community to engage that that um, that joyful exploratory stuff, and that is well, what I, I I want other people to do. Yeah, it's amazing to me how. I mean, where I thought you were going to go with that was like, you know, COVID. You have to think, and like I find myself thinking. In ways that I've never thought before. Oh, that, oh, absolutely. I mean, like, if you think about the problem is when I say control, it's also distraction. Like, you go to work, you got a task list. You're in traffic. You're listening to the radio. You're, I mean, it's, it's like our lives are built to be distracted. Like, what can I click to buy shopping wise today? What sort of digital right. or, or in-person adventure can I go on? And like, we cram our lives full of, karate classes and yoga and whatever and it's just stuff to do stuff to unlock and stuff to achieve and we confuse um ourselves like our, who we actually are with the checklist of stuff we've got to do and like right. COVID is a perfect opportunity <laughs> where like you can't do all that stuff you can't be distracted you're going to have to be with yourself and figure out whether you like yourself or not well like, figure out whether you like your choices to this point in your in your life or not and really wrestle with that stuff. I think that's absolutely true. I think what you're describing is a kind of like alienation from yourself. Um, well, what I COVID was, what I, moving yeah, in the other way. Go ahead. What I was describing actually was like, um, you know, like if I go here without a mask because of the county I live in, there's a pretty decent chance that, you know, not a too decent, but a fairly decent chance that. I could get this or that or the other problem or, or whatever. And so first it's like, do I want that? Like before I got the serious masks, it was like, do I really need to go there? Is that, is that a place I need to go in a, in a, I said Oregon trail, but like in an Oregon trail kind of hunter gatherer 
sense of the word. <laughs> you know? Sure. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that. And I don't think a lot of Americans were used to thinking in that way. And like for me, I used to be like, I, I really did used to be one of these people that was thinking, oh yeah, we're going to, we can hang out at the house for a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two and, and be fine. And then I had a friend, um, I had two things happened. I had a, fi- I have a friend who, who deals in the concert world and with arena concerts. And she was getting real with people on Facebook about what they're telling her, like what the 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 promoters and stuff are telling her. And then, like, I talked to this professor, and he was saying something his wife read where this vaccine could take years to create. And I'm like, all right, I don't know if our economy is going to be in existence in five years. Let alone, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Like, like, eh. All right. Um, okay, let me unhook the recording, and then I'll, um, let me just talk to you a second. But I'll unhook the recording and...